Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 9. The Bible says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Tonight, with the help of the Spirit of God, I want to preach to us on the thought of spiritual or soulish. Pray with me here tonight. Father, we do come, Lord, once again before your throne. Lord, we need to hear your voice. Lord, we need you to speak unto us. Lord, cause your word to go forth tonight. Lord, as a sharp two-edged sword, let it indeed penetrate. Lord, let it divide between soul and spirit. Lord, let it search, let it examine the innermost parts of our being. God, I pray for conviction tonight. Oh, Lord, that you would awaken us to our great need of you. That you would draw us tonight. Lord, that you would work in the midst of your church within each and every heart. God, meet every need. Lord, that we would all stand perfect and complete in all of your will. That we would be filled with your fullness. Oh, God. Grant it, we pray. We ask it tonight in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Spiritual or soulish? That is the question that I want to place before us tonight. What we must understand, saints, is this. Christianity is supernatural. It's not difficult, it's impossible. No man can live the Christian life. It is from the beginning to the end a ministration of the Spirit of God. Only Jesus Christ by His Spirit within a man can bring forth this life as it was meant to be lived. Paul said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobate. 
Paul said in Romans, he said we were enemies, that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You ask tonight, who is saved tonight? I'll tell you, according to the scriptures, those who are allowing the life of Christ to live within them. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And there are absolute laws that govern spiritual life that govern the continuation of spiritual life. And if we do not abide by them, then we will not know the true grace of God. Peter says this of the church. He says that we are lively stones, that we are to be built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We as the church saints are to be a spiritual house made up of individual lively stones each of us having a personal covenant with God by sacrifice and each of us coming to supply the measure of life that has been entrusted to us thus you and I we must be spiritual not merely act spiritual or be able to talk spiritual we must each be spiritual individuals lively stones from the least to the greatest spirituality is not ultimately measured by our reputation amongst men by our biblical knowledge by our orthodoxy our outward appearance our separation from the world our faithfulness to attend church or our ability to expound upon the truth and refute the gainsayer oh these things are good things and necessary things but these things do not determine the measure of our spirituality it is rather the measure of the life of Christ that we presently possess by the Spirit of God. How much have I been inwardly conformed to Christ? Robert Murray McShane said this. He said, what a man is on his knees before God is what he is. That alone and no more. It was Ravenhill that said, there's three men within all of us. There's the one we think we are. There's the one we want others to think we are. And there's the one that God knows us to be. And that is who we are tonight. Christianity is thus in essence the stewardship of divine life. And healthy, mature life has absolute and unmistakable marks. It breathes. It has an appetite. It possesses a sense of responsibility. And it has a fierce will to live. These are the marks. And everyone that is alive and has life has these marks. It breathes. What does that speak about in the spirit? It speaks of prayer. A man that is alive is a man of prayer as Leonard Ravenhill said no man is greater than his prayer life but prayer is not just to be something that we do from time to time we are to live in the spirit of prayer prayer is to be the very spirit of our lives as we live
live and walk in communion with God. Perhaps the four greatest words that give our spiritual temperature tonight is the measure of our personal, consistent, intimate, secret prayer. That is the measure of our spirituality tonight. Secondly, there's appetite. An appetite and a hunger for the Word of God. Is the Word of God sweet and precious to you tonight? Do you delight therein, my friend? You know, David said, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. I believe that word O. It's the biggest little word in the Bible. That word O. It speaks about an inexpressible spiritual longing. Is there an O in your spirit tonight regarding the word of God? You know, if my son Daniel comes to the dinner table and he says, I'm not hungry, it's one of three things. Either he's sick, he's full of something else, or he's dead. Those are the only three options. And if you and I tonight are not hungry for God, if there is no spiritual appetite as we pull our legs up under God's table tonight, it's either because we're sick, we're full of this world, or we're spiritually dead. That is an absolute. Dear one, do you possess a sense of spiritual responsibility tonight for your family and for this church? Is there a burden upon you to be what God has called you to be, to supply your measure of faith? And is there a radical and a desperate will to live and overcome? You see, within man, there is a drive to live. I read a story about a man out hiking, fell into some crevice, and his hand got trapped in some rocks. And he was there in that crevice for days. Nobody knew where he was. But the will to live within him caused him to take out his knife and cut his own hand off so that he could live. And those that truly have the life of God within them, the Bible says whatsoever is born of God overcomes this world. And if you have the life of God within you, when you start to see that spiritual temperature begin to cool off, then you will stir and shake yourself. According to these marks tonight, Are you alive or have you allowed the fire to go out upon the altar of your heart? You see, if a man is going to have abundant life in this hour, he's going to have to fight for it with all of his might. The thief has come. He's come down with great wrath and he's come to steal and to kill and to destroy that life. But praise God, Christ has come to give us life, to give us abundant, overcoming life if we will abide by these laws of life. And tonight, I want to deal with a ubiquitous and subtle enemy and a thief of spiritual life and fullness.
You know, we can look out in the world tonight. We can see there's gross apostasy all around. We see a disesteeming, a rejection of the word of God as the all-wise standard of life. We see worldliness, sensuality, and sensationalism within the church. We see this cult of bigness, the replacement of preaching of the pure gospel with entertainment and pop psychology. We see the extreme of intellectualism on one hand and emotionalism on the other. The plagues of humanism and pragmatism are rampant. Unbiblical notions of who God is and what Christianity practically looks like. We can all see that. In fact, Jeremiah prophesied this. He says the days are coming in which they'll no more say the Lord liveth that brought up the children of God out of the land of Egypt but the Lord liveth that brought up and led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country. You know what he's saying? He's saying there's going to come a time in which you're not trying to get people saved out of the world but trying to get them saved out of religion, out of Babylon and that's where we are tonight. The American church is a modern Babylon a tragic mixture a mixed multitude of confused spiritual vagabonds wandering and groping in a religious wilderness. But there's always a self-inflicted cause. When you find such a spiritual state, there's idolatry in that heart. There is a reason. But what about us tonight, church? You see, the spiritual individual is not content just to know this. He is grieved and driven to become the remedy himself. This is what spirituality will do. And when we examine ourselves tonight, there are things that plague us as a body. Spiritual inconsistency up and down, up and down. And down, a spiritual complacency, a dependence upon feelings, a nagging, a lingering carnality in our midst, a perpetual compassing about the mountain of spiritual mediocrity, an above average but a less than full experience in the spirit. This is what we see when we take a cold, hard look at ourselves tonight. And what is it that hinders us from walking in God's fullness? You know, Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, Oh, lend me your ears. He said, This I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the praise and glory of God. The burden of Paul's prayer is that these believers like us today would bring glory to God by manifesting the golden fruits of Christ. But he reveals that there is a necessary spiritual condition to such spiritual success. Notice, here is Paul, the man of God as he says here he says I am praying for you that your love may abound 
Oh, there's so much in that right there. Christianity, it's summed up in one word, love. And Paul said that charity or love, it never fails. When we are filled with God's Spirit, then we will love God. And we will love one another. You see, this is what happens when our love begins to abound. Christianity becomes natural. Oh, there's nothing like it. It's so dry and difficult when we don't have that love of God shed abroad within our hearts. But when the love of God comes within a soul of man, oh, as it says about Jacob, he served Laban there for Rachel for seven years, but it just seemed like days because of the love of God in his heart. Samuel Logan Bringle, He experienced this love. He said, I walked out over Boston Commons before breakfast, weeping for joy and praising God. He said, oh, how I loved. In that hour, I knew Jesus. And I loved him till it seemed my heart would break with love. I was filled with love for all his creatures. I heard the little sparrows chattering, and I loved them. I saw a little worm wriggling across my path and I stepped over it. I didn't want to hurt any living thing. I loved the dogs. I loved the horses. I loved the little urchins on the street. I loved the strangers that hurried by me. I loved the heathen. I loved the whole world. And when a man has such love within his heart, then Christianity will become second nature. And when love abounds like this, it brings knowledge and judgment. Spiritual knowledge is nothing more than a present revelation of Christ. That's what it is. And this love not only gives us a knowledge of Christ, but it also brings about judgment. This knowledge will compel us and enable us to exercise true judgment and thus discern all things in the light of God. Oh yes, we need to judge all things out there in that world. But the most severest judgment that we exercise ought to be in regards to ourselves. Judgment must begin in this spiritual house right here. And that means that it must start with me objectively judging myself by allowing the word of God to search my own heart and divide between the relatively good and the spiritually excellent. And when we see rightly and think rightly, then there will come into our hearts, as Paul said, this approving of things that are excellent. A yearning of spiritual excellence. Not for what is merely lawful, but what is spiritually profitable. And such a spirit will produce a heart and life that is sincere and unmixed and thus genuine inward spirituality. And out of such a heart, the golden fruits of Christ will be manifest. But if you and I are self-absorbed and do not experience this abounding love of God in our hearts, then this golden chain reaction will never take place in our lives. You know, it's elementary to judge 
between the holy and the profane. Anybody with a thimble of spirituality can do that. Anybody can see the apostasy. Anybody can climb into the coward's castle and become a Facebook prophet. Anybody can tell the world that they're going to hell. And anybody can see that there's judgment coming upon America. But it takes a spiritual man to judge himself and then become the remedy to the problem. What we need, church, is a willingness and a desire for God to deeply search us and examine the foundation and the source of our Christianity. You know, as a father, I tell my children, I tell my workers, there's a fine line between wisdom and laziness. And sometimes it takes a father or a boss to make that discernment. There's a fine line between spiritual maturity and apathy. And likewise, there's a fine line between spirituality and religious soulishness. You know, if there is an oak sapling growing up in a flower bed, there's no problem at all to recognize that. But there are some weeds that are so close to the real that it takes great discernment to recognize them. Discernment is not merely distinguishing the difference between right and wrong. It's distinguishing the difference between right and almost right. And you and I must take heed tonight. Paul is here expressing a most significant spiritual essential. And if we are to bring forth such pure fruit, then we must exercise such judgment within our own lives by the Spirit and the Word of God. We must be able by the Spirit of God to distinguish things that differ at a high level of seeming similarity because the relatively good is perhaps the greatest enemy to God's spiritual best. May we fall upon the sword of God tonight. For unless we are spiritual men and women, the realization of God's purpose is impossible. Let's look a little deeper into this dynamic and ask ourselves the question, am I soulish or spiritual? First of all, what is man? Man is a tripartite being consisting of spirit, soul, and body. It says in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. The body is simply the outward physical man by which we're world conscious. The soul, divided up into mind, will, and emotions, is the organ by which we are self-conscious. And the spirit is the faculty through which we are God conscious. Now man was designed by God to be indwelt by God's spirit within his spirit. And man filled with God's spirit was then to govern his soul and body according to God's law and will and thus manifest Christ in the earth. Allow me to give you an analogy here tonight. 
The Spirit is likened unto the royal residence, prepared by God for the royal resident of God's Spirit. The soul is like the music room with the grand piano of human personality. And the body is just the amplifier to communicate this music to the world. Now, when God created Adam in his innocence, the Spirit of God resided there in the royal residence of Adam's spirit. And he imparted the life of God to that man. The Spirit of God had exclusive access to Adam's soul, the music room. And he alone had the right to sit there at the keyboard of human personality. He instructed the mind. He controlled the emotions. He guided the will. And he struck every chord in perfect harmony with the law of God. And the beautiful melody which rang out was evident that God was reigning in that house. God, however, had given to Adam the key to that music room, which was his free will. And the royal resident would only stay as long as he was given exclusive access. However, one day the deceiver came along and persuaded Adam that he could play the song of God himself. Adam believed his lie. He locked the music room. But the next thing he knew, the flesh had broken in and sat down at that piano and was pounding away on that keyboard. You see, the Holy Ghost governing our lives is the source of all godliness and spirituality. There is no other way. But in the fall, the order was disrupted. Adam's spirit died. The Holy Ghost left and the soul took over and began to control that man. Adam became a soulish being. Now you and I tonight, we're not going to allow any Iron Maiden or Billy Joel to be played on our piano. That's for sure. But the temptation that you and I face tonight is this. To believe that we, in our own ability, apart from God, can play the song of God. You know what the song of God is? This is it right here. Only the Holy Ghost can play this song. I'll tell you, you know what Romans 7 is? Romans 7 is man at his best state trying to play this song. And it is impossible. The only way for you and I to bring forth the fruit of Christ is if we allow the Spirit of God to have absolute control over our being. Sometimes when I go to LSU, I'll give the students an analogy. When I'm telling them about the possibilities of Christianity, the reality, the potential that's available to us in Christ, they say it's impossible. I say yes in your own strength, but not through God. And I'll take a glove sometimes, and I'll place my Bible on the ground and set a glove right next to it, and I'll command that glove to pick up 
that Bible. I'll even yell at that glove. I'll jump up and down. I'll scream at it. But to this day, that glove has never picked up that Bible because it can't. That's a type of man without God. Man with just the law. But then I'll take that glove, Brother Shane, and I'll put it on this hand right here. And then that glove can do everything that this hand can do. You see, that's what Christianity is. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But he didn't leave us there. Through him, we can do all things. This is the reality of Christianity. Humanity possessed with divinity. We can think his thoughts. We can speak his words. Jesus said we can do his works. And if we will abide in him, we can walk this earth even as he walked. But that is only going to take place when we lose our life and allow him to take full and complete control. This is what's available to us tonight if we want it. Hallelujah. According to the scripture, there are three classes of man. There's the unregenerate who are dead to God. There's the spiritual who are alive to God. But then in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, we have the natural. And the natural man is regenerate, but still immature in Christ, being much influenced by the soul, the mind, the will, the emotions, which have not yet been fully divided from the spirit and brought into subjection. This is the carnality of 1 Corinthians. I'm not speaking about the doctrine of the carnal Christian. And you notice in the word of God, in Romans 7, Paul said, I am carnal, sold under sin. That speaks about being unregenerate. But in 1 Corinthians, he said, I, you are carnal, babes in Christ. You see, this is a different kind of carnality. This is what it's speaking about in 1 Corinthians. This natural man that is regenerate, but there is still lingering carnality. And I believe this natural condition is a type of the wilderness in which although God will for a season suffer our carnal manners, He surely does not approve of it. And if we will not put these carnal elements away, we will not only fail to realize spiritual maturity, but we will eventually be destroyed. What was God's intention for man? He determined to have all of his dealings with man and to fulfill his purposes through the means of man's spirit. The Bible says that God is a spirit. Only spirit can worship spirit. The Bible says the things of God know no man but the spirit of God. This is why we must be spiritual. Divine things can only be comprehended by revelation and not by reason. Only spirit can worship spirit. Only spirit can serve spirit. Thus, we must be spiritual. Although God is indeed the creator of all men, he is only the father of the regenerate. 
Because according to the scriptures, he's the father of our spirits. He's not the father of our bodies and of our souls. The Bible says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And no amount of religious knowledge can make a carnal or a natural man spiritual. That which is of the flesh is fleshly. And this right here is where much of Christendom is deceived. There's nothing spiritual about it. It's just entertainment. It's just emotion. Psychology and aesthetics is all most churches are made of. You don't have to be spiritual to be nice, but you do have to be spiritual to be holy. This is why biblical evangelism is so misunderstood because most are soulish and carnal and not spiritual. Thus, they do not understand nor respect Receive the things of God. You see, no matter how religious a man appears to be, if the source and sanctifying agent of his Christianity is not the life of God and his spirit, then there is death in the pot. And consider, if you and I backslide in our hearts, we will become self-righteous before we become unrighteous. You see, the backslider is filled with his own ways. And if you and I backslide in our heart, we can remember how to do it. We've learned how to act in the house of God. That's the great danger, being lost within the house, just having a memory, just having some kind of spiritual knowledge and going through the religious motions but lost the life of God within the heart. You see, the flesh has a soul side as well as a body side. And even though the soul side is not outwardly vile, it is still hostile to God. And like Cain, soulish flesh will serve God, but in its own strength, on its own terms, and according to its own ideas. Unregenerate man's spirit is dead to God. That's the condition of the unregenerate man. He's believed the lie of the devil. He's made himself God. He decides what's right and wrong with his own mind. He's an idolater who loves the things of the world. But when a man is born again, this is what takes place. His spirit is resurrected through regeneration. And he is gloriously changed and light floods his soul. But as glorious as this is, it is only the beginning of a walk with God in which that believer must then maintain a posture of saving faith as he practically puts on Christ and learns to walk in the Spirit. You see, the new creature must learn to walk in the Spirit. And for this to happen, he must bring his soul, which has been his source and master of life, under the subjection of his Spirit. You see, our salvation must be worked out from sinner 
to circumference. The newborn babe, he must learn a whole new way to live. There must be a radical renewing of this mind. His reason and his feelings and his personal preferences must all be replaced with God. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And it then says, and all things are of God. Now remember, the soul or the self is not intrinsically wicked. It was created by God for a purpose and is good in its place. Jesus had a soul or a self. He said of mine own self, I can do nothing. Thus the self is not intrinsically wicked. And Jesus said that we are to deny ourselves. You see, flesh is to be crucified, but self is to be denied. Self only becomes wicked when it is submitted to the flesh and used to gratify one's own sensual passions. Thus, it is not sinful to use our intellect. God forbid we're to love God with all of our mind. It's not sinful to have emotions and to exercise our wills, but they can never be the source of our life or our master. You see, the immature believer, he's tossed to and fro, up and down. Why is this? Because he's still governed by his soul and he has not yet learned to walk in the spirit and bring his soul under subjection, standing upon the word of God. When I was young in God, I can remember I'd be condemned because I wouldn't feel forgiven if I sinned. And I'll never forget one day, I was just crying out to God and the Spirit of God spoke to my heart and He basically said this. He said, how dare you exalt your feelings above my word. I told you, if you confess your sin, I'm faithful and just to forgive you. Now you believe my word and you stand there. And as soon as I trusted His word and I rejected my feelings, then liberty came in to my heart. You see, I was learning to walk in the Spirit. I would have a hard time praying, a hard time worshiping God if I didn't feel something. What was I doing? I was being governed by my soul, by my feelings, and I learned to take authority over my soul. I learned to choose to worship God, to choose to press in, to choose to draw near. And the Bible says that God will inhabit the praises of His people. You begin to praise Him. You begin to get your eyes off of yourself and the Spirit of God will flood your soul. Brother Shane shared with me at the tent the other night there in Brookhaven. He said, oh brother, I learned something today. He said, I couldn't pray. I was just bound. And he said, I began to pray for others and liberty came to my soul. That's the Holy Ghost teaching you, my brother. That's what it says about Job. You know when God delivered Job? When he began to pray for his friends. You see, this is the way to liberty. This is the 
way to freedom. We get our eyes off of ourselves and we get them on Christ and we get them on others. I remember the devil would come to me. He would torment me. He would oppress me. And I read there in 1 John, it says, Whosoever is born of God keepeth himself and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, I looked up that word. I said, it sure seems like he's touching me a lot. But I looked up that word touch, and it's not this kind of touch right here. That word touch means to attach himself. In other words, what it's saying there is he can come, but he cannot stay. You have power over him. And when he comes to oppress you, you just choose to resist him and submit yourself to the word of God, and liberty will come. You see, this is growing up in Christ, choosing to take authority over our souls in Jesus' name. Look at David. This is what he's doing in the Psalms. He's saying, why are you cast down, O my soul? What's wrong with you, in other words? Why are you disquieted? And he commanded his soul. He said, soul, hope in God. It says in Psalm 103, here he is, he's talking to his soul. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. What's he doing? He's taking authority over that soul. Paul told Timothy, he said, you stir up the gift that's in you. That gift is in you. That grace is there. That life is available. You just got to stir yourself by faith and lay hold of it. It's right there if you want it. We see David encouraging himself in the Lord. You see, this right here is the essence of spiritual warfare. This is how we grow up into Christ. And I am convinced that this right here usually separates the living from the dead. Those that learn this lesson right here, They go on with God. They are the ones that will then have victory and life to give to others. This is the way to spiritual maturity and stability in God. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 in our text, what does it say? It says that word comes and divides between soul and spirit. And then Peter said, when we then obey that word, our souls are purified. And then we can obey the command of Jesus who said, in patience, possess ye your souls. And as we continue therein, we will receive the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. Do you see the heavenly order? First there's division. Then there's purification. Then we learn to possess that soul. And then comes final salvation. After being born again, each of us must be spiritually educated. By steadfast obedience to the word, we gain experience and understanding. And we come to think rightly about God, rightly about ourselves, and rightly about the trials of life. You look at at Jesus. He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. The devil came to him and what did he say? He said, if you be the son of God, cause these stones to be turned to bread. You notice what Jesus said. He didn't say, oh devil, if I'm the son of God, you saw that I was born of a virgin. Devil, you watched me as a child and you never saw me sin. 
He didn't say that, did he? He didn't say, devil, you heard my father speak there from heaven when I was baptized. Oh, no. What did he say? He said, it is written. He appealed to the word of God because this is where our victory comes from. It comes by standing upon the word of God. But then you notice the devil caught on. He said, okay, I see your game now. And the next time he came to him, he said, well, it says in the word that he'll give his angels charge over you. You see, this is what happens. At first, the devil comes with that accusation and we quote the word. He realized he can't get us there. Well, then he's going to send some religious devil to us to tell us something, what the Bible says. But what did Jesus say? He said, oh devil, it's written again. He went right back to the word of God. You see, this is our weapon of conquest. This is how we overcome by standing on the word of God. We must all come to see the deceptiveness and the fickleness of our feelings. They mean nothing whatsoever, either good or bad. As it says in that great hymn, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. He says in that hymn, he said, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. In other words, I don't even trust the best of feelings. I don't even trust the best of testimonies. I've got a more sure word of prophecy, and it is the word of God, and this is where I stand. This is spiritual maturity, and we must fight this battle. We must never fight this battle in our souls, but in our spirit with the sword of the spirit. And if you will live by this rule, dear saint, you will learn firsthand that the history of Christianity is a history of spiritual victories disguised as natural defeats. And those who have refused to be moved in their trials are the ones that are still marching on to Zion today. You see, this is the way. It must be written upon our hearts by the Spirit of God. Let God be true and every man a liar. We walk by faith and not by sight. And we must also understand that there is no good thing in us and we are dangerous and impotent and utterly blind apart from God and His grace. We must come to realize this truth. This is the path from soulishness to spirituality. To wage a good warfare, the spirit must be kept in vital union with God and the soul must be brought under the Spirit's authority, that the pure life of God may be manifest in our body. John the Revelator, he said in Revelation 22, he said, God showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And when Jesus sits on the throne of this heart and rules from our spirit, then that pure river of life will flow from us. In our text in Hebrews, it says the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart.
The issue at hand, according to verse 11, is the attaining of spiritual fullness or rest. The inward and personal application of the Word of God is shown here to be essential thereto. And according to this passage, the Word of God comes specifically to divide between soul and spirit. The language of Hebrews 4 and 12, however, suggests that there is an extreme difficulty in distinguishing between the soul and the spirit, both in their nature and activities. In fact, I would say, apart from the illumination of the Spirit of God and the Word of God, it is nearly impossible to distinguish at times. You see, where there is carnality in a life, it's hard to pin down. You know why that is? It's because those that are carnal are carnal. And they really don't see rightly. And as the Bible says, the natural or the carnal man, he cannot understand or receive the things of the Spirit of God. But you can tell there's something that's amiss in this life. There's something that is out of gear. And if you and I are not walking in victory and we do not know that the life of God within us in this way, then we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to allow the Word and the Spirit of God to search us. You see, according to this text, if we are to attain spiritual fullness, we must allow the sword of God's Word to painfully divide between soul and spirit. The Word of God, it comes forth from this pulpit in this church. God speaks to us regularly and specifically. But the question is, are we really being honest? Are we really allowing the Word of God to search us? You know, if Brother Timothy went to a doctor and he said, I'm having some terrible problems, and that doctor began to poke around, and Timothy's feeling something, but he just... Don't feel a thing. No, don't nothing. Don't feel a thing. Then that doctor can never help Timothy. And that's the way it is. People that are carnal, they begin to insulate themselves. They begin to become dishonest with the word of God. They will not side with God against themselves. And they do not allow the word of God to come and deliver them from themselves. You see, according to the text, if we are to attain spiritual fullness, we must allow the sword of God to penetrate and divide between soul and spirit. This is the process of maturity. Learning the difference between our religious self and Jesus Christ. What do we learn from these verses? We see here a comparison made between the relationship of the soul and and the spirit, to joints and marrow, and then to thoughts and intents. Consider, joints and marrow, they are different, but they are nevertheless related. You see, our joints, they deal with the practical function of our body. But the marrow is a substance inside of our bones, which speaks of the essential source of life. The proper functioning of the joint 
is dependent upon the supply of the marrow because the marrow is the source of life for the bones and the joints. Thus, if there is no life from the marrow, the joints cannot function properly. The thoughts and the intents, likewise, these are distinct but related. For consider, although both thoughts and intents are inward and hidden, one is deeper and more spiritually significant than the other. For the intents or the motives of our heart will either sanctify or defile the thoughts. You see, in the joints and the marrow analogy, we see the necessity of the proper source of life to bring about the proper function of life. And in the thoughts and the intense analogy, we learn that the innermost part of our being will determine our true spiritual condition and success. And the inner sanctuary of man is his spirit where Christ by His Spirit must be allowed to reign unchallenged. You see, the spiritual individual is born of the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. And He does not allow His soul to encroach upon His Spirit and influence His decisions, His actions, and His demeanor. He has learned to walk in the Spirit. And in order to realize and maintain such spirituality, we must understand this dynamic and allow the Word of God to divide between soul and spirit. And then we must choose to walk in the truth of the Word, bringing our soul into subjection. You see, in the, in the Scriptures, the soul is feminine. And the spirit is masculine. David said in Psalm 34, he said, My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Now God thankfully has created femininity. But to complement and be subservient to the masculinity of the spirit. You ask, why has the church become emasculated? And why are there so many effeminate men in the pulpits? You know why? Because of soulishness. This is why. Because the Spirit of God and the Word of God are not preeminent. And man is doing it by what seems right to him. He's doing it by his own emotion. He's doing it by his own talent. Creating this, this atmosphere, this aesthetic atmosphere. Atmosphere, and this is why we see such an effeminacy in the church. Saul was a soulish man, and he lacked the moral fortitude to execute Agag, the flesh. But Samuel, who was spiritual, he had no problem hewing that flesh to pieces. You see, Saul is an example of soulishness. He was esteemed not for his spirituality, but rather his natural attributes. He brought a sacrifice. He worshipped, but he did it his way. He was more concerned about his reputation before men than he was about his spirituality before God. Saul could prophesy with the prophets, but he was utterly blind to his carnality. 
Saul was petty and jealous. He executed rash decisions and harsh judgments. And what was the cause? He rejected the word of God through his authority. This is why Saul was a spirit, was a soulish individual. And beloved, we must examine ourselves tonight and ask, what is the source of my religious activity? You see, God's standard of judgment is not good and evil. His ultimate standard is flesh or spirit because religious people can do good things in the flesh. So how can we judge ourselves tonight? What are the fruits of the soul? We can find it here in the letter of Paul to the Corinthians as he addresses this malady. Now think about this. The first letter to the Corinthians was written. Do you know why? Because a delegation of believers presented a letter to Paul requesting instruction on certain issues. These are people that had a spiritual curiosity. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 7 and 1, Paul said, Now, concerning the things whereof you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He says in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1, Now, as touching things offered to idols. In 12 and 1, he says, Now, concerning spiritual gifts. In 16 and 1, he says, Now, concerning the collection of the saints. You see, these believers had written to him. They had a lot of spiritual questions. But with apostolic wisdom, the great apostle corrects their heart before he instructs their heads. You see, this is always the way of the Spirit. Spirit comes before letter. You know, I used to to have a man. His name was John Wren. Some of you may remember him. He came and, and he would stay with Brother Britt and then he would stay with, with, with me for a while. And, and we were seeking to reach out to him and help him. He worked with me. And he just had a bad spirit. He was carnal. And many times he would come to me and he would come and, and he would have this question. And he would ask me this question. But the Holy Ghost would never allow me to answer his question. The Holy Ghost would have me lay the axe to the root and deal with his spirit. And I remember he would always, you're not answering my question. Why won't you answer my question? Because I've got to deal with your spirit and your heart before I can deal with your head. I was giving him the answer. But because he was carnal, he didn't recognize it and he wouldn't receive it. You see, that's what he needed. He needed the truth. He needed his heart dealt with, not his head instructing. You see, the Corinthians, they were rich in knowledge. They were rich in speech. They were operating in the gifts. They were spiritually curious with questions concerning marriage, remarriage, mixed marriages, meat offered to idols, head coverings, women roles, metaphysical difficulties regarding the resurrection. These are people that appeared to be spiritual. But the first thing Paul does in that letter is he rebukes them for their carnality because they couldn't even get along with one another. This is what he says. He says, brethren, you've written to me, but I can't speak to you as spiritual 
but as unto carnal, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat. For you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are carnal. How do you know, Paul? For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? You see, this is the sign of carnality. And likewise, this is the sign of spirituality. Those that are truly spiritual, they love one another. They dwell together in unity, especially within the home. That is the true measure of our spirituality right there. I love what James Stewart said. He said, revival is living the Christ life in because that's the hardest place to live it. You see, there may be angelic eloquence, vast knowledge, orthodoxy, fiery zeal, but it is all defiled and rejected by God if the golden grace of spiritual love is missing. And when there is carnality in the pot, personal spiritual progress is impossible. And you can talk to people that are carnal. And you can be sharing with them truth, spiritual meat, the precious and the deep things of Christ. But you can tell they don't even esteem it. They don't realize how precious it is because they are carnal. We can imagine ourselves to be something, brethren. But if we cannot stop from quarreling amongst ourselves... We are at best spiritual infants. Since the soul is comprised of mind, will, and emotions, soulishness will be manifest in those areas. Think about it. The mind, those who are soulish in this area, they're often confused and unstable because they're always trying to figure out how God is going to work and move. Such are tormented by condemnation and nagging doubts because they will not thoroughly repent and then just stand upon the word of God. Such have unfounded fears that everybody is against them. They spend much of their time scheming and worrying instead of meditating on the word of God and seeking first His kingdom. They do not have simple childlike faith in the scriptures and they're ever seeking to reconcile the Bible with science. You see, these are those that are given over to intellectualism, to trusting in their mind, trying to figure everything out. These are the ones that are open to the pseudo-academic accusations of higher criticism regarding the Word of God. And such will not understand nor receive the things of the Spirit when you apply it to them because they're filtering it through their own mind and they can't understand. Regarding the will, such people are self-willed. They're stubborn. They're independent. It says in Jude 1 and 9, These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. 
That word sensual, it means carnal. It means natural. And those that are natural, they separate themselves from the body. They separate themselves from their authority. You know what it says in Proverbs chapter 18? It says, through desire, a man having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. You ever read that? I can remember when I went to my grandfather's farm. I thought, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm separating myself, and I'm going to seek and intermeddle with all wisdom. I thought it was a good thing. I realized it was a bad thing. Do you know what that verse is saying? Those who through their own desires, because of their own sensuality, they separate themselves from God and His body and, and their authority, and it says that they intermeddle or they quarrel with wisdom. And whenever the devil is seeking to sift us, that's what he'll do. He'll isolate us. And then all of a sudden, we'll enter into a conversation. We think we're having a conversation with ourselves, but we're having a conversation with the devil and we're quarreling with wisdom. We're quarreling with truth. We're quarreling with the truth that our authority gave us that would make us free. And we're thinking in our mind how silly and how stupid that is. This is what takes place when we are soulish in regards to our will. Such can be instructed over and over, but they're going to do it their way, and they will not sacrifice their preferences for the unity of the body. Such are oblivious to spiritual order and jurisdictions, and they will readily take authority over other people's children and wives. What is this? It's carnality. Regarding the emotions, such are emotional basket cases. They're governed by natural sentiment instead of biblical love. This is why it says in Proverbs 19 and 18, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. You see, when we're soulish, we're apt to spare. We're apt to be sentimental. We're apt to spare the rod, to spare the sword, and not deal with things as we ought to deal with them. Pentecostalism, this is emotional soulishness. Such are dependent upon feelings before they act. They have a God of the gut. You see, these are the attributes and the fruit of those who are soulish rather than spiritual. Here are a few other things. Soulish people are inwardly bound and depressed because they live by the law of negative suppression of their true views and desires rather than by the reality of revelation. That's why they're bound. They're heavy laden. Christianity is not a joy to them. Why is it? Because inwardly they have not received the truth that would make them free. They hold on to their own ideas, but they know they've got to do it this way or they'll get in trouble. You see, Christian, it's not a, a negative suppression. Once you embrace the truth and you allow the Spirit of God to reign, then you will see it as God sees it. And then you will be made free and you will love the things of God. Such have no spiritual strength or sight because they refuse to lose their lives. The soulish individual has a secret desire and need for natural rewards and recognition. 
He does not possess the spirituality just to live as unto the Lord. Constantly having to tell everybody about His good works and His good deeds. The soulish must have natural evidence or feeling to be spiritually satisfied or motivated. They will not press in by faith. And they are unstable as water because they're always consulting their souls regarding their spiritual condition. The soulish is driven to be right rather than to have a right spirit. And such individuals, they're always striving over non-essentials. They're always arguing over things that are non-essential. The soulish are at home in the midst of the religious excitement of the camp meeting, but they're at a loss in an unaided worship service or a protracted prayer meeting. The soulish man is sporadic, up and down. He's moody. The soulish are dogmatic regarding their own opinions, preferences, and non-essentials, oblivious to the weightier matters of spirituality and order, which they violate in the name of being right and having their own way. The soulish are sensual. This is why we see such an infatuation with music in our generation. It's because people are soulish. The more spiritual you get, the more you'll see music for the reason God gave it. And that's a medium to worship God and not to entertain us. And the more you will become word-saturated, the more you will love to listen to the Bible rather than music. You see, this is the difference. The soulish are ever being stirred but they remain unchanged. They are independent and aloof. They never really come in and become a part. They mistake fleshly sentiment for biblical love, human assertiveness for heavenly authority, curiosity for hunger, and emotional tantrums for spiritual zeal. And finally, the soulish individual despises correction. When you come to them and you correct them, I tell you what, they won't receive it and embrace it. You know what they'll do? They will either justify themselves or they will accuse you and start trying to disciple you and tell you what you ought to think and the way that you ought to live and the way that you ought to disciple them. You see, this is the mark of someone that is not spiritual but soulish. What is the problem? There's a mixture. There's soul and spirit. They have not totally lost their life. They have not allowed the word of God to come and to slay their idols and their opinions and their preferences. This is what is taking place. There is this unholy mixture, an earthly rather than a heavenly fountain that defiles the water of life that would come through their well. So what is the remedy? The remedy, as it says in Hebrews, if we want to enter into God's rest, if we want to have life and victory and peace and joy, then we've got to cease from our own works, as it says. 
We must abandon the way that seems so right to us and bow to the Word of God. We must choose to receive the Word of God into our hearts to our own undoing. In other words, we must be honest when God speaks to us. I was reading through Hebrews yesterday and I looked and I'd never seen this. It says there, it says, If ye will hear my voice, harden not your heart. He didn't say if you can hear it. He said if you will hear it. Because each of us, if we're born of God, we are hearing God speak to us. The question is, will we receive it and embrace it and allow it to do its work in our hearts? It says there in Hebrews 4, it says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Who is this speaking of? It's speaking of Jesus, our high priest. And yes, he's a faithful and a merciful high priest. But that high priest also, when that sacrifice was given to him, he would take it and flay it and he would cut it open, exposing the entrails. And if we truly want to be made free and enter into the rest of God, then we too must allow that high priest Christ to flay us with his word and search us the inward parts of our very being. Let's stand here tonight. What did Jesus say? He said, He that loveth his life shall lose it. That word life, that's suke, that's the soul. In other words, if you love your soulish life, your own opinions, if you're going to be governed by what you feel, if you're going to do it the way that seems right to you, if we refuse to lose that life, then Jesus says, then we will lose our lives. But if we will hate that life, then we will keep our life unto eternal life. Let's find an altar here tonight. There is a rest to the people of God. Jesus says to you tonight, come unto me. All ye that, are, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest under your souls. There is rest, saint of God, but it's only through the way of the cross. Oh God, Lord, apply your word to each of our hearts tonight. Divide between soul and spirit. Lord, search us with your candle. Lord, grant us spiritual courage to come.
come into the light. To desire to know what you think. To desire to see ourselves as you see us. Lord, that we would not be content with spiritual mediocrity. Oh God, let that love, that divine love be shed abroad within our hearts. Lord, that our knowledge and discernment, that it might work rightly, that we, Lord, might approve things that are excellent. Father, that we might bring forth the fruits of Christ in our life unto your glory and unto your praise. Oh God, deal with each and every heart here tonight. Accomplish your purpose. In Jesus' name. chapter 6 and here's the remedy right here it says reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin 
but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You see, we want to yield our members unto God before we're willing to yield ourself unto God. And as I said, the self is the soul. And the self or the soul is not intrinsically evil or wicked. It's who we are. It's our mind, will, our emotions. But what it says here is that once we understand that through the gospel, our old man, that flesh was crucified with Christ. And now because of that, that body of sin, that that union between our soul and the flesh has been rendered inoperative. The soul has been set free now. And now through grace, we can yield ourselves to God. I can yield my mind to God. It can be renewed. I can think His thoughts. I can yield my emotions and my affections to God. I can meditate on His Word. I can think upon Him instead of meditating on the things of this world. I can yield my will unto God. And you see, when a man does that, when he yields himself, his soul, he yields his mind, He yields his emotions and affections. He yields his will. He gives it all to God. Then God will sit down at the piano of that life and he will play the law of God. And there will be rest and there will be victory in that life. This is God's way. And there is a rest available to us. But to find that life, we got to lose this life.